If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 8. That's at the very beginning of the Bible, and if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in front of you in the pew, and we'd love to give that to you as a gift today. If you don't have a Bible at home, just take that with you as our gift to you. be finishing up this series that we've been doing on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. There's a clear break in Genesis 1 through 11 talking about just the formation and the story of the whole world. And we're going to speed up a little bit. Uh, We've been looking at every uh, single verse here, but we're going to pick it up a little bit so we can finish by the beginning of May. And um, today we're looking at this covenant, this agreement that God makes with Noah and with all of creation. So we're going to read uh, the first, the last few verses of chapter 8 and then skip down to the first seven of chapter 9. It's printed for you in the bulletin as well. Let's read this together. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Into chapter 9. And you, he's talking to Noah here, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become, become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. One of the parts of my job that's very sad, and um, you may or may not be aware that it's a part of my week, but you might know we're, we're one of the closest churches, maybe even the closest church, I think, to Phoenix Children's Hospital, so just a mile from here, and um, certainly the, the closest, uh, what we would sometimes call evangelical church, a church in our tribe, and so... One of the things that results from that is that when people are staying there, I get calls. And I get these calls from people in desperate situations. As you might imagine, someone gets to Phoenix Children's Hospital, it's probably not for a good reason. 
their child has cancer, disease of some kind, and they are there for treatment and they're in a place of desperation and they pull out their phones and they search church and ours pops up first. And so they call me for help, for meals, for money, for prayer. And so it's a regular part of my job to go there, to be with people. And so I have this association with the place that even though it's full of bright colors and, and uh, it looks happy, it's a very sad place because of all the memories that I have of going over there. And uh, when I drive by that, I have that feeling of, of sadness. And a couple weeks ago, I was driving by the hospital and I looked up at the, uh, at the building and there was a number of messages kind of printed in the windows. Maybe you've seen these as you've driven by. And one of the messages was a hashtag. And it said, hashtag look for, number four, look for the rainbows. Look for the rainbows. So curious, I looked up that hashtag on Instagram and on Twitter just to see what was trending there. And basically, even though there wasn't a definition given of what that hashtag means, I think you can probably figure out what it means. It means look for opportunities of hope. And so this hashtag has a, a series of videos and posts of people who are doing fun things while they're at the hospital or, um, or experiencing um, you know, some kind of joy that was unexpected. And there's all these positive stories knowing that that hashtag is attached to a children's hospital, that there's a, a deep sorrow there, but there's, there's a joy. Look for opportunities of hope, which is basically what the rainbow really means, doesn't it? I mean, the rainbow is interesting because a rainbow only comes after a storm. When something hard or evil or dark or foreboding is happening, then a rainbow appears and we find it beautiful. And that's really the meaning of uh, the rainbow. If we think about it in our own minds, it is the beautiful thing after the hard thing. The beautiful thing after the hard thing. And where we get that idea is from the passage that we read today. As God says, it is the sign of my covenant is the sign of my everlasting agreement with you that you can have hope that as long as things are, I will establish this covenant with you. I will give you this hope, this covenant. We use that word around here sometimes, and this is the first time the word appears in the Bible, covenant. Even though we believe God makes a covenant with Adam, he makes an agreement. That's what a covenant is. It's a, a bond. It's one that's initiated by God, and he makes promises to us, and then he seals those promises with a sign, with some kind of picture, with some kind of action, with some kind of representation that shows us that this bond is from him. And so the, the sign that he gives is this rainbow. This covenant has been called the covenant of preservation. It's God's promise to preserve us and the earth. He's going to continue to have this commitment to the earth all the way through eternity. He will continue to make it beautiful and he will put off this judgment until the end. The judgment that he's just given on the earth when we talked about the flood, the, the judgment of God that we saw 
last time we looked at Genesis. And so it's a reminder to us to look for the rainbow and a reminder to him that he is going to look to the rainbow as well as we're going to see. That there's going to be hard things and there's going to be beauty at the end of it. Here's what I want us to see today. God's promise to preserve his creation forever means that every hard thing, that by that I mean every hard category, everything that we experience in this world will eventually have a beautiful conclusion. Every hard thing will eventually have a beautiful conclusion. Now what I'm not saying when I say that is something that we sometimes hear, which is that every rainbow has a particular, every storm has a particular rainbow. I know we've heard that before. Basically, there's a silver lining to, to every cloud. There is an expectation that even though something is hard, we can always, always understand exactly why it's hard and why we're going through it. Now, that's not what Scripture promises. There's not a rainbow for every single storm. There's not always a connection that we can see. There's not always a bright side to a child having cancer. But there is rainbow. There is the promise of God and what he's doing in the world. And there is the promise that it will have a beautiful conclusion. And when we see the rainbow and when we see Scripture passages like this, and we have reminders in our own lives. It's a reminder to us where we are going. God will preserve us to the end. So how does God preserve the world? And we'll look at three surprising ways that he does so. The first way is this. He preserves the world around us. Around us. This is the first surprising thing about this passage. I say it's surprising to us as modern day Christians who are uh, usually hyper-focused and not always wrongfully so, but usually hyper-focused on individual salvation, that the, the church exists to present the gospel that individual believers believe, and therefore we go to heaven. That is the message. Now those things are very true. But the surprising thing about this covenant that God makes, an everlasting covenant, is that it includes everything around us, including the individual. God doesn't just make it exclusively with the individual or the family, but with all of creation. Now, it does deal with the individual and the family. That's what it says in chapter 9, verse 9. I will establish my covenant with you and with your offspring, to you, Noah, and your family. So he makes that explicit, but we keep reading after that, verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the field with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. This covenant is God's covenant with all of creation. Now, mankind is, is, is rightfully at the center of God's creation because we are the only ones, human beings, made in the image of God. We have been given dominion. We have this unique position in creation. And yet, what we don't recognize enough sometimes is that God has a commitment to the land and the animals and all that he has made that is good. And that those things were affected when we fell, um, when we fell in, our, in the fall, we rejected God. But 
his whole creation suffered. It wasn't just mankind that died in the flood that we talked about last time. God promises not just to the individual, but to all that is around us. He actually has a promise to the created order. Verse 22 of chapter 8, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God makes a commitment to the structures of creation that he has even put into place. Now, God is able to work outside of those structures, and he sometimes does. But usually, what he has created is good to him, and he allows it to continue until the end. So a question we might ask ourselves is this. Does our understanding of God's redemption include every good thing that he has created, including the land, including critters? One of my favorite examples of this, and I I know I've mentioned this before, and so some of you might get tired of me talking about it, but I love the book of Jonah and the way that it ends because it shows God's commitment. If you remember the story of Jonah, Jonah, he runs away from God, and God wants him to go to Nineveh, and he does eventually go to Nineveh, and God has a commitment to Nineveh, this nation that's outside of Israel. It's like a, a parody, like a parable of what Israel should be doing. They should be a light to the nations. They should be this people group on a mission, and yet they become exclusive and internal looking. And so Jonah doesn't even care about the Ninevites, and God does, and he wants him to go there. And and he he preaches this half-hearted sermon, and all of these people come to the Lord, and the Lord, uh, and Jonah is displeased, and he leaves, and he goes outside of town, and he sulks. And the way that the book of Jonah ends is that he says, basically, um, Jonah, what are you doing? What are, what are you thinking? Don't you, don't you agree that, that I would want to save all of these people in Nineveh and also the cows? I mean, that's literally the last phrase of Jonah, the book of Jonah. And much cattle? Like, that's, that's the end. God had a commitment to the people of Nineveh, but he also didn't want to destroy the cows, and we see it in this passage too. He says, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to bring a flood to the earth. I don't desire that. And so I'm going to make a commitment that includes not having to do that. And in part because he saw the creatures that he had made. And he saw the beauty of the land that was destroyed. And so that's the first surprising thing about this preservation is that it happens not just to us but around us. And we think about the sign, the rainbow. It's kind of an all-encompassing sign. It's beautiful that this is attached to this covenant, this agreement with God. This ark that goes over almost including everything that we can see. The signs of the covenant are not always so. In fact, in the next few chapters, it's going to be a covenant, another one, with Abraham. And the sign is going to be circumcision. Well, circumcision is very personal and very individual. Okay, But the rainbow casts a wide range. Why does this matter? It answers a couple of questions for us. A couple of ultimate questions. What is our task and what is our hope? What is our task? Our task is to cultivate God's good creation. Our task is to have a right relationship with God, to be saved by him, to be included in this covenant, yes. 
But more than that, it is also a commitment to the things that are around us to cultivate those things. In fact, one of the first things that Noah's going to do when he gets off the ark is he's going to plant a vineyard. It's going to be one of his top priorities. Like, okay, it's my job to repopulate the world. <laughs> we need wine, you know? Like, that's, that's, what he, that's one of the first priorities, right? Now, he takes it too far, too. That's another story. Um, but, like, that was his commitment, right? Like, I'm going to cultivate the ground. Our task is not just to us as souls, but to what's around us, but also our hope is what is around us. We do not believe in a disembodied, floating, eternal existence. Our hope is earthy. And by that I mean this. God's commitment to the earth is forever. The final vision is not us floating away from God, what God has created. It's him restoring what he has created and making it completely good. So when God preserves things, he does it around us. It includes us, but it's also around us. That's the first surprising thing. The second surprising thing is that it's through us. Through us. You probably noticed, perhaps, if you've been with us, that much of the language here that is applied to Noah is the same that was applied to Adam, the first man who was created. When the world was created, everything was given to Adam, and now that the world is being, in a sense, recreated, it is given to Noah to preserve it. And so there's this parallel between the two. This new Adam is Noah. And there's a lot that is similar. You think about it. God gave Adam dominion over creation. He also gives dominion to Noah to reestablish it. The animals are brought to Adam for him to name. The animals are brought to Noah for him to preserve. Adam is told to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And the exact same language is used here to tell Noah to preserve the earth as well through multiplication. So God establishes, that's what he says in verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. That means that he is reformalizing the thing that was already true. And this is something that we believe about the scriptures. God doesn't have multiple plans. He doesn't, he doesn't plan things and then that fails and scratch and restart over. He actually is continuing the same plan. God hasn't changed. He still wants the same things. He still wants the earth to be filled with creatures and with human beings bearing his image that he enjoys and that enjoy him and that glorify him. That's always been the plan of God. And he reestablishes this plan with Noah after the flood. And the surprising thing is that he accomplishes that plan through us. And that's surprising because of what all of mankind has done up to this point. We saw it last time. The storm of evil necessitated the storm of judgment in the flood and because of that storm of evil there was every intention of every heart was only evil continually that's what the scripture says that doesn't leave a lot of room for this bright hope and it continues in verse 21 here the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth so even after the flood even after the judgment even after Noah was identified as a righteous man there is still evil intent in the heart of mankind and so God you would think would find a different way 
to bring about this preservation, but he doesn't. He continues to use us. Maybe you thought it was kind of strange, and I agree. Verse 21 seems like a a non sequitur. It doesn't seem like it follows. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God says, I'm not going to judge the world anymore, for the intention of the heart is evil. That doesn't seem to follow, does it? Why would God continue to do that through us, even though we have these hearts that are far away from him? God is able to use us even with evil intent. That's the surprising and beautiful truth here. Even though there is evil intent, he still gives the same charge to Noah. What is the charge? To have dominion and to multiply. We didn't read that portion about how he should have dominion. There's too much there to to talk about, but um, Noah is told that all the creatures of the land are are for him, and he can eat them, and he can... um, use creation, he can cultivate it as long as he respects it as well. He's not going to eat the meat while it still has the lifeblood in it. There are rules to this. But he's given dominion, not domination, but dominion over the creatures, just like Noah, just like Adam was. And then he's also told that this preservation is going to happen through multiplication. Verse 7, And you, be fruitful and multiply, Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Exact same language as Adam given to Noah here. He's told that the way that God is going to preserve this earth is through multiplication. It's through putting little image bearers throughout the world. This is one of the primary ways that God preserves his earth. And you've probably noticed that emphasis that we have around here as well. We emphasize the family. Why do we do that? Sometimes we even use language, weird words like covenant children. That we get that from this passage, starting this passage and as it unfolds throughout the rest of scripture. These children are covenant children. Why? Because it was the family of Noah who was preserved. Have you ever thought about that? Why was Noah's family preserved? Was it just expedient? Just because God knew that he needed to repopulate the earth and he needed some warm bodies to do that? Let me ask you this in particular. Why was Ham, Noah's son, in the ark? Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the story of Noah after this is going to be the exact same story as Adam. Do you remember the story of Adam? There are two lines. There's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. These two lines, there's Seth and there is Cain. And there's the way of Seth and the way of Cain. And they go out in two different directions. And the same thing is going to happen after the flood. Shem is going to have the seed of the woman. And Ham is going to have the curse. Did that surprise God? Did he not know that that Ham was going to be cursed? No, of course he knew. Then why was Ham not outside of the ark? Why was he not dealt with like 
the nations who raged against God because of the righteousness of Noah. Because God preserved him through Noah. And though Ham walked away tragically from this and was cursed, this is the way that God continues to preserve the world. Through multiplication, through family. It works through us. Surprising. With the evil intent of our heart, God still works through us. He doesn't just work through us. He works around us with all of creation, but he also works through us. And third and final thing I want us to see today is this. He preserves the world despite us. Despite us. God has a love despite, a preservation despite our influence. I think we're familiar with the concept of loving despite. Well, let me just give you an example real quick. I had a Jeep Cherokee for 12 years that I loved. And I sold it a few years ago for a couple thousand dollars, and I've regretted it ever since. I don't know why I, I did that. Why did I love this Jeep Cherokee? Was it because of the great gas mileage? <laughs> no. Perhaps it was because it never broke down. <laughs> Incorrect again. Perhaps it was because it was very economical and, you know, I'd already put money into it and so I had to just keep it for the long haul. No, I'm pretty sure that I spent more than it was worth multiple times over to preserve that car. Why did I love it then? I loved it because it was mine, because it was special to me. My preservation of it was really despite its usefulness to me, wasn't it? Here's the thing. God does not need us for his mission, ultimately. He delights to have us in his mission. But this covenant is evidence. It's evidence that he is the one who has to bring the weight of this covenant to bear, not us. It's in many ways not because we're so good at multiplying and stamping his image on the world, not because we're so good at having dominion over the creatures and just ruling in this world the way that he wants us to, because the evil intent is still there. The heart is still set against him. But what does God do with that? He surprises us by not using that as an excuse to throw out like we might do. Oh, that's not useful to me anymore. That's not good. That malfunctions. I don't need it anymore. He doesn't scrap the plan despite the evil intent of man's heart. He says, I still want to preserve them and everything good that I have made. Let me use a few big words here. This covenant that God makes with us has been called universal, unilateral, and unconditional. Universal. It applies to all of creation. Unilateral. It is, means that God initiated this. God decided to have this agreement with us by his own good pleasure, not because of us, but because of him. Unconditional, meaning that God secures this covenant with himself, not with our obedience. Now, when I say unconditional, 
I don't mean that it does not involve obedience to God. Noah built the ark. Noah had to be fruitful and multiply. Noah had to follow God. But the central thing about this story is not Noah's obedience. It is that the outcome is not dependent on him. God doesn't make this promise ultimately dependent on us. He makes it dependent on his ability, his character, his purposes. And that is ultimately how the world is preserved. That's how he continues to do it. He preserves it despite us. The ultimate preservation of the world happens because God's wrath is redirected. And we see that even in this passage here. Even though Noah was given dominion and he was told to be fruitful and there's every indication that that maybe there was some hope for mankind to be good, the evil intent of the heart has to be dealt with. And so we see at the very opening of this what Noah does is he sacrifices. That's the very first act. When he comes off of the ark, he sets up a worship service. Verse 20 of chapter 8, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. You see, when the sacrifice happens, God's wrath turns away. It's redirected to the sacrifice. And so Noah... It's like the first priest who stood for his family and himself and, in fact, the whole world offering sacrifices to God. And that is the same story that's going to happen over and over again throughout the rest of the scriptures. The world is going to be preserved through sacrifice, through appeasing God's wrath, through the blood of animals to keep the world in check, to keep it preserved But as we come into the New Testament, we see that the blood of animals would not, could not, and never was intended to be enough. For that, we need the blood of Christ to satisfy the wrath of God. And that ensures that the world is preserved. Ultimately, the world is preserved because Christ sacrificed himself on its behalf. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he knew that he was going to preserve this world forever because of what Christ has done, despite what we have done. All of it has everything to do with God, ultimately. We have faith. We have obedience. Yes, we look for the rainbows. We see signs of hope. We remember God's works in this world. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. We, we believe that that's going to happen. But the hope of this passage is not that we can always find the rainbow. It's the fact that God says that his commitment is that he will remember it. Verse 16, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. It's not just a reminder to us. It's a reminder to God because we come in and out of awareness of that. We break our commitments, but when he sees the bow in the clouds, he knows that commitment and he has never forgotten it. 
so important for us because we experience countless hard things. Some of those hard things are, are the result of sin in our lives. There is sin in the world. There is slaughter. There is murder. There is racism. There is trouble in your family. There are addictions. And some of the hard things that we experience are not because of our individual sin, but because of sin more broadly. There is death. There is despair. There is hopelessness. There is childlessness. There is chronic pain. God's commitment in this passage is everlasting. I will remember my covenant. None of those hard things can undo God's commitment to us and to this world. Every hard thing, even though in the short term we don't always see the rainbow attached to it, we believe will have the beautiful conclusion that the scriptures ends with. New heavens and new earth. Every hard thing finds a beautiful conclusion because of God's commitment and despite our evil intent. That's what the scripture promises us. And so we can always draw a line. Whatever hard thing I'm experiencing, whatever thing that is troubling me, whatever reason I might have to be at Phoenix Children's Hospital or any other hard place, I know that ultimately I am preserved because of Christ and because of his commitment to this earth being made new in the conclusion. Let's pray.